the word of our Lord, the majestic is the name in all the earth. You're seeking glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to slay the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not left us, left us wandering, that you have shown us your glory. God, help us today as we look at your word, work in us by your spirit. Help us to see who you are. Help it to bubble forth in praise that we might truly say from our hearts, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sad summer's coming to an end. You probably felt that a little bit this morning. Teachers report back next week, Monday, tomorrow, for um, school. We're wrapping up our summer sermon series. We've been just walking through some different psalms this summer. So kind of picking and choosing different ones. And the psalms are kind of the hymn book of God's people. Right? And like music, they touch us. They're less, um, not, not theological, but they're meant to touch more of our affections, to get more at our heart than just our heads, and they help us shape that. And one of the great things about the book of Psalms is that it touches the full gamut, touches on everything. We have heard psalms of lament that are crying out to God for his help in difficult situations. We've, we've seen psalms of confidence that are meant to build us up, to bolster us, that God is caring for us, that he will bring us through. We've heard psalms of thanksgiving, like last week, how we respond to what God has done for us, especially last week in the forgiveness of our sins. We've looked at royal psalms that ultimately point forward to the great son of David, Jesus Christ, who redeems God's people who is a perfect king over us. And as we're wrapping up our series this morning, we're going to look at one more genre, one that we haven't quite hit this summer, a psalm of praise. One that shows us how we should respond whenever we consider who God is and what he has done. There are numerous psalms of praise. We often use them, or portions of them, for our call to worship, as you see those. Um, but this one especially focuses on creation. As I said, the Psalms are meant to shape us. They give us the right language and even the right feeling. They guide us in how we should respond to different things. And this one shows us how we should respond when we look at creation, when we look at what God has made, especially at the magnitude of the cosmos in contrast to our own small lives and yet the significance that we still have, the dignity that he's given us. And the answer to how we should respond is clear in our psalm today. It should cause us to burst forth in praise. It's not about us. 
the first words and the last words of the psalm are lifted way up, up, up in us when we consider what God has made, what he has done. And say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we need to remember that Lord, when it's all caps like that, is actually a very personal covenant name, Yahweh, as we think of that. So it's how he's revealed himself to his people whom he is redeeming. Yahweh, our Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth. All the earth, even among those who don't know you, who don't know who you are, your name is still majestic. You are still great. You are still worthy of all praise. So what in our psalm causes this doxology, this praise to well up inside of us? It's this paradox of God's work in creation, of power and might set alongside seemingly weakness. The vastness and splendor of creation set alongside the smallness of humanity. And yet we are significant. That he makes us and crowns us with glory and honor. So as we're going to look at this, we're going to take it in two parts, kind of especially as it relates to how we understand ourselves. So first we're going to see that we're small, and then we're going to see that we're significant. So we're small, and yet we're significant. First we see our smallness. This is especially seen as we consider ourselves in light of all of creation, the magnitude of creation. You see in the second half of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory, his splendor is beyond it. Further than the eyes can see, even beyond all the stars. So it starts with the magnitude of who our God is. He is great. Then it gets a little bit weird, right? Verse 2. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I think what's happening here is that because of sin, we can look at this. We can see it and not recognize his glory. And then he has chosen what is weak, what is small. Babies and infants, I think in the Old Testament, this is thinking of Israel in light of the mightier Canaanite nations around them. What is weak he has revealed himself. And they're the ones that shout forth his praise, that establish his strength. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates it as praise, not strength. So the strength of your majesty in praise as we're looking at a song. That's what it shows. He's chosen what's weak to proclaim his majesty. And he wants to interpret it for us in the midst of our enemies. Because the psalmist wouldn't get it. Verses 3 to 8 wouldn't make sense if it wasn't revealed to him. Then we come back to verse 3, which we like pick up right off at the end of verse 1. When I looked at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So we kind of have this picture of someone's outside. They're looking up. It's a clear sky. You think of in, in Israel, they didn't have quite the light pollution that we have in Appleton. A lot less electricity and things going on like that. So just a crystal clear night. And you look up. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Just beautiful. More stars than you can imagine. Just in awe of it. The beauty of it. 
what does he call them? They're your hands, the work of your fingers. Creation's also described as the work of his hands, as we see in verse 6. This is the only time that it says the work of your fingers. Only times God's fingers are described like this. So what is this actually saying about creation here? It's highlighting how big God is and how finely he has done his work. I just built a shelf in our basement. Storage shelf. Just threw it together as quickly as I could. Used the cheapest wood I could find. And, uh, you know, it does its job. It holds stuff up. But if you look closely at it, you're going to see that it is not perfect. You're not going to want to rub your hand alongside of it unless you want a few splinters. I built it as quickly as I could. We got a four-month-old and a three-year-old to try to do it uh, when they're not sleeping and when Allison's not needing help. So trying to squeeze in time to do that, slapped it together, and it does its job. And I don't care that it's not perfect. That's the work of my hands, right? Compare that to something like this new carpet we just got or our baptismal bowl or chalice, or the artwork that we have to walk past in the foyer that you know, artists at our church have made these things, put these things together. When it says the work of your fingers, it's talking about these finer points, this attention to detail, these finishing touches. If you've ever worked on these things, you notice that you're slapping it together. It's in your fingertips that you're working on this. God doesn't just throw it together like my shelf. The cosmos bear his fingerprints. It's a work of art that he labored over. God speaks and things come into existence and yet he did spend six days doing this. He kept coming back until it was complete. Then he rested. Now any culture tells a story about creation, about how everything got here. They have to. If you're ever going to address the big questions in life, you have to touch on that. You can't say why we're here. You can't say why, we're, why we matter. Why anything we do, does matter. What we should do. How we should live. None of that makes any difference if you can't address how we got here. It's foundational to all of these things. And in all of the stories, all the creation stories that I'm aware of outside of Christianity, the theme is not intentionality. It's not care. It's not beauty. It's not artwork. It's chaos. It's God's at war and creation coming out of it. Or for our own culture, the most prevalent story in our day is it's a big bang. Boom. There you go. There it is. But where does any of that leave us? Have you ever looked up at the stars and felt so small? Who am I? We live our days consumed with everything going on right around us. We need a little perspective. Before having kids, um, I liked flying places. Real kids, I prefer flying over a long drive, but I don't like it. Right? It's not fun. Allison just read me a meme the other day that was like, when your kids are acting up on the plane, no one likes it, but you know who likes it the least? The parents. Right? It's true. But I always like when you take off. 
rising up and everything's getting smaller, right? People are big and then they're tiny. They're ants. You can't even see them. Big buildings are small. And this gives me this perspective. And the things that consume all of my thoughts, the work I have to do, the papers I would have to submit, all of these things, the laundry that's now going to the house, the dishes that are stacked there, they're not that big of a deal. You can't focus on all of that, but it's nothing. It'll be okay. Those things in the grand scheme of the world are small. How many of you have seen the picture, a pale blue dot? Show of hands. Like three. All right, perfect. So this is a picture that was taken in 1990 by Voyager 1. It's a space probe that was launched, I think, in 1977, if I'm correct. And when the picture was taken, it was about four billion miles away from the Earth. Four billion miles. And it's this dark picture that has uh, four or five sunbeams, kind of different colors going across it. You can Google it later or right now, whatever. Um, These sunbeams. And suspended in one of the sunbeams is this little pale blue dot. It's uh, like something like 12% of a pixel. Like if you've ever seen, if you've got sunbeams coming through a window and you see dust floating in it, it's kind of like that, but just one. There are no other ones, just one little dot. And that's Earth. Carl Sagan, he's an astronomer and astrophysicist, he wrote about it and he said, look at this, just this little tiny dot, this speck. Look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. All of it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, every hero and coward, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. It gives us this perspective. We're small. It's kind of what we get from the psalmist here too. He's looking up at it. What is man? Who am I? We're so small, so fragile. But Sagan doesn't see what the psalmist does. He sees the vastness of the universe, and it's in awe, but not of the one who made it. He comes away with saying that we should be more kind to one another, that we should take care of our planet. But why? If we're here by chance, then nothing we do matters. It's survival of the fittest. And if we look even at history, we'll see that apart from the belief in the God of the Bible, the world is a savage place. Seeing the vastness of the universe and being in awe of the one who made it changes everything. Because although we are small, we're still significant. 
when the psalmist considers his own finitude, how small he is, or how, rather how small the entire human race is, his response is one of wonder. Why? Why would the God who fashioned all of this with his fingers, why would he think of us? Why would he remember us? Why would he care for us? You see what the question implies, though? That God is mindful of us. That God does care for us. Despite how small we are in the grand scheme of the cosmos, we are significant. That you are significant. The one who made it all, he also made you. That you are a work of art like the heavens. He thinks of you. He cares for you. He made you significant. Look at how he describes humanity in verses 5 to 8. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. If you're familiar with the creation story, this is mostly a recapitulation of Genesis 1, 26-28. God says, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It goes on. He has crowned us with glory and honor by making us in his image. The one whose glory is above the heavens has crowned us with glory and honor. God is the king of the universe who rules all things and he has made mankind his kingly representatives. He has put his creation under our dominion. His name is majestic, and because we are made in his image, we have dignity. We have value and significance. Every person has value and worth. Every person matters. But if there's no God, then it falls apart. Tim Keller would tell the story of a friend who is in residency, and he's in a uh, psychiatric rotation, and there's a patient who's not doing well at all, depressed, um, just thinks he's worthless, suicidal. And another one of the residents who was there said, what he needs is to see that he's not trash, that he is valuable, that every human being is valuable. And the attending physician kind of pushed back on that, kind of the teaching method of probing in and asking these questions. He says, how do you know that? We're scientists. What scientific basis is there for saying that? You have these feelings that that's true, but how do you know that to be true? And the wife said, all the residents were really uncomfortable, a little frustrated and angry, but none of them responded. Because there's not an answer to that. The only one who has an answer that can say every human being is valuable, every human being has dignity and worth, is the one who knows God made them in his image. 
only one that can say he's not trash. He's valuable. That's where our significance comes from. That's where our value and dignity come from. And not just for Christians either. It goes for every human being. Even those who hate God and hate His church. Every human being is worthy of dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God. They are crowned with glory and honor because they are made in His image. It should change the way that we treat people. Even despite this, I think we look for our value in so many other places. We try to make meaning. We try to make give ourselves dignity by doing other things. I think there are three main categories for this. I'll give you another alliteration. I think we wrongly search for the significance in accomplishments, in accumulation, and in authenticity. What we can accomplish, what we can get done, what we can accumulate and gather and have, or by expressing who I really am on the inside, by being authentic. But you can probably see how quickly all of these just fall apart. If I matter because of what I can accomplish, because of my job or my skills, because I get good grades or my parents are happy with me, what happens when I lose my job? When sickness takes away my ability, when I mess up, it's gone. I'm not worth anything. Nor are others who can't do these things. Ignore them, push them to the side. Accomplishment doesn't do it. Or accumulation, the things I can gather for myself, the possessions or the power I have. But what happens when the next model comes out? Your stuff gets old. You get old. Your influence wanes. When the stock market crashes, I don't have anything, so I'm not worth anything. Nor are others who don't have stuff. So I might as well take advantage of them. See how it just falls apart? Or if I matter only if I can express who I truly am. That's probably the biggest one rising today. This idea of being authentic. Of who I am on the inside. Expressing this. Showing you my value and worth and manufacturing that and performing it for you. But what happens when I can't do it? What happens when I have conflicting desires? small, easy example is... Um, I want to lose 10 pounds, but I also really want to eat that donut. Like, what's the true me? That one's silly. But it goes just like that on deeper things, too. What happens when I don't know who I am? What happens when I change? What happens when I do express everything possible, and then I'm still not happy? And I'm not worth anything. Right? You see how exhausting all of these are? That's what we do. It takes a lot of work to manufacture our own meaning for ourselves. Especially to have it be so fragile. 
there's a better way. Instead of making it yourself, you simply receive it. Look at the psalm. The only thing the psalmist does is look at the heavens. Everything else is what God does. Here's the thing. This is true, whether you recognize it or not. Maybe you're on this hamster wheel of manufacturing your own meaning, but the truth is that you are significant, that you are valuable. You do have dignity because God has made you in his image. Whether you believe it or not, just believe it. What if we actually did? We don't have to do anything for it. It just is. Because that's how good God is. Would that not lead you to praise Him? Would that not lead you to actually want to reflect His character out into the world more? You see that it's good. And there's an issue here, right? If we look around at the world, things don't quite look right. We all recognize that. It's acknowledged in verse 2 that there are enemies and foes. But if we look at each other, uh, we don't quite exercise this dominion very well. We take advantage of each other. We use each other. We abuse each other. We don't reflect God's character well into the world around us. We often don't praise God as we ought. It's what we call sin. Because after Genesis 1 and 2, which is the creation account, comes Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobeyed God. And we follow them in that. God's image, stamped on them in perfection, remains in us, but now it's marred. It's a little bit messed up. It's like a copy you print the real thing and then, you know, after it's been copied 45,000 times and there are lines and stuff all over it, it just doesn't look right. So a cattywampus on the page. It's marred, but it's still there. And God's glory is still obvious. If we look up at the heavens, we should see it, but we don't. We're oblivious to it. That's kind of what Romans 1 tells us. But what can be known about God is made clear, yet we suppress that truth. So we can't even often do what the psalmist says and look up at the heavens and see it. So how can we know this is true? How can we know that God is mindful of us? How can we know that he cares for us? It comes in a way we might not expect. Through weakness. This is what's listed here in the, out of the mouths of infants and babes. Strength is established. This word care here, the son of man that you care for him. It's actually literally the word visit, to visit, to attend to. It's, uh, it's translated into Greek, it's the same word that uh, John the Baptist, uh, Zechariah uses. He's prophesying Jesus' birth. 
Just blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He cares for us. In Jesus' blood, God with us, who redeems his people from their sin. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's just amazing, the incarnation, that we are made in his image, but then he makes, he takes on our likeness to redeem us. It's not humanity. And he does what we couldn't, and he lives the way we should, but then dies in our place, on our behalf. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry where he's riding on the donkey, and then he goes into the temple and he flips over the tables, and the little children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, which is essentially saying, save us, our king. And the religious leaders don't like this. And they say to Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? And he says, yes, haven't you read Psalm 8? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The weak and the helpless actually point us in the right direction. They point us to Jesus. And Jesus answers their cry. He saves all who believe in him by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead on the third day. That he conquers all his and our enemies as our king. How can you know that you have any value or significance? How can you know that God is mindful of you? How can you know that he cares for you? Because he came to us in his son. He inhabited this pale blue dot. He took on flesh. He's born fully human. A little baby. He lived the way we should have and died the death we deserve and rose again that we might have life. And he's still fully human. And will be for eternity. That's nuts. How can you know you have value? We're reminded right here at the Lord's Supper. We celebrate every week. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and he broke it. said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink... Eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is how we know that he cares for us, that he gave himself for us. And he sent us his spirit to indwell us. He's given us his word to remind us. He's given us the sacrament to physically remind us and to actually nourish us. And he is present with us in it. That as we partake of this by faith, we are lifted up into heaven. 
that we get to experience His presence and be given strength to carry on. Do you confess your sin and need for a Savior and rely upon Him alone for your salvation? Do you know your need for Him? Can you say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Psalm 